Welcome to the College Version 2 Podcast. And now your hosts, Ross Markle and Andrea Pope. Good afternoon, Andrea. Welcome to another episode of the College Version 2 Podcast. It's good to be back with you. As always, it's a great time talking to you. I'm happy to be here too. So before we get started, a general kind of shout out note to the audience. Today, we're going to be talking about advising and we were scheduled to have with us a very special guest, especially for those of you that are connecting with us through the League for Innovation. Uh, We were to have Terry O'Banion with us, but Terry has been not feeling super great lately and wasn't able to make it with us. And so I want to thank him for broad support of me and broad collaboration. He and I had a chance to publish a paper together about 10 years ago, and we've always had, uh, had great conversations and it's great catching up with him. Bummed he couldn't be with us today, but did want, we will talk about him, obviously, if we're having a conversation about advising, but couldn't be with us today. Wish he was here. Hope he's feeling great and uh, hope to see him at Innovations uh, in a couple of months whenever we make our way there. So we have been, Andre, you and I, talking a lot about advising recently and um, mostly just really trying to think about where we plug into advising, where our, where advisors plug into our work. And I do feel like a lot of times, I don't know if you have this experience, but I know when I talk to lay people who aren't in kind of the higher ed space, I say like, oh yeah, we, we inform advisors. We work a lot with advisors, but that's not necessarily always the case. And so today we wanted to take a little bit more time to make sure people kind of knew or, or maybe help ourselves a little bit kind of anchor into this advising space. As we are preparing for this conversation, I, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but for those who are tuning in for the first time, as a grad student at James Madison University, I actually worked in our career and academic advising office. Uh, and I was working part-time, but I had all of the responsibilities of a full-time advisor, just with a much smaller caseload. So I've had some firsthand experience with advising, um, uh, but I'll say that in preparing for this episode and in the conversations that we've been having, Ross, about advising uh, and the advising landscape, it's just become so clear to me that, you know, my experience was atypical in a lot of ways. And I didn't necessarily experience a lot of the same barriers and challenges that many advisors face. But there are many of those barriers and challenges to the work of good advising. So as we get into this conversation, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about different models of advising and our perspective on the question of what does good advising look like? What does it entail? But I want to get it out there at the very beginning that we recognize that advising is really hard work and there are a lot of barriers to um, you know, doing this work well. But I believe, uh, and Ross, I, I think you would agree that you know when we focus on the obstacles, oftentimes all we can see is what we can't do, and it robs us of our sense of agency um, and our, our motivation to do what we can. But if we focus on where we want to be, where we want to go, then we can start imagining the possibilities, and I, I, I believe that that's what inspires us to act. You know, so I hope that as folks are listening to this episode, that they're inspired to envision what could be instead of being discouraged by what is. Uh, And, you know, we'll talk about those barriers a a bit at the end, but I think the majority of this conversation is really going to be focusing on different perspectives on what advising kind of looks like at its best when we're doing our best to support our students. It's so funny you mentioned that. And 
I've, I've read two books in the last couple years. One was The Body by Bill Bryson, and the other was this book I just finished called Utopia for Pragmatists, which is like about super progressive economic theory. And both of those books independently talked about this phenomenon that I think is rife across a lot of like our just, I don't want to say science, but just kind of ways of human thinking, where they both point out for so long, life was terrible, right? Like disease and war and famine. And not that we still don't have our fair share of that. But we just spent so much time fixing problems. Like medicine's the best example, right? Like up until the 1900s, medicine was about curing disease, right? It was about how do we stop you from dying before you should? And then it was a really difficult shift to think about like, well, how do we promote good life? And people that do preventative medicine would argue, we still don't do that very well, right? We talk about that in higher ed with deficit mindset too, of like, don't just look at students as all of these problems that we have to fix. Also think about like, what are the positive things that we're aspiring to? Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. When it comes to advisors, and I'm not even talking about advising at, at broad, I'm talking about advisors specifically. We lump so many problems on them. And they are oftentimes the most overburdened, the least supported, you know, the most uh, caseload, as you talked about. And so I think it's really important, as you said, to emphasize, we get that. Although I do have to say, how many students did you have on your caseload when you were at JMU? I was trying to go back and see if I could find that. I don't think it was above 100. I think it was probably around 100. If, if It might have been. That was more than I thought it would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think it was like in the 50 to 100 range, but I can't, I, I tried to find it. <laughs> so we talk with schools where, especially in like a community college setting, you get into the thousands or more exactly. per advisor type exactly. of caseload. And, and again, advising models are different. Not everybody has a, a quote unquote caseload. I'm making air quotes you can't see. But <laughs> the point is, we are not doing this to say, hey, advisors, you stink. You need to be doing all this stuff. I hope nobody pulls that as a quote out of this podcast. But my point is, when we talk with schools, it's usually about what we think a system of student sh support should be. And when we talk about that, we generally talk about three functions. We talk about advising, coaching, and counseling. We talk about advising as kind of curriculum management, scheduling, picking courses, picking a major, managing the curriculum in an effective and timely manner to get to degree completion. As I always say, when I went to college, that's what advising was. But then when we talk about coaching, it's a lot of the work that we do with Isaac and non-cognitive skills and all that stuff. And we say every student needs that, whether that happens from an advisor or from a coach. We're just trying to say to schools, you need to be doing that at some place. And then the third function is counseling, which maybe not every student needs, unlike advising and coaching. But when those moments happen, they're critical. We're talking about you know, food insecurity, homelessness, troubles at home, mental health, all of that stuff, which we've become so much more aware of. And obviously, no one person can do all that, you know, sort of like a dedicated life coach. But really, that's what we're saying is like, that's what institutions need to do. And when we come in and talk with institutions, it's usually the case that the person that ends up doing the work that we talk about from that coaching function ends up being an advisor. And so the lines between advising and advisors, coaching and coaches, coaching and advisors, in the state of California, they call everyone a counselor in the community college system, right? Like, so these words are a real impediment to what we're trying to do. And so 
Completely agree. This is not us talking to advisors or even really advising. It's just probably the best title that we have to put on. Yeah. Yep. So in that vein, you know, in, and in lieu of having Terry as a guest, as we had hoped, what we really want to do is talk about some resources. And this is going to be a bit literature review-y, but really we kind of each picked a few articles or other resources um, that we wanted to talk about that we thought bridged the gap, that really helped talk about these issues we're discussing up front here, which is what is advising? What are advisors asked to do? What are some things that we know work that, that don't happen enough? And perhaps more importantly, what are really kind of mindsets about advising that align with what we think are good practice from what we know from both the literature and practice and our own experience, et cetera. So with that, let's begin. Yeah, let's do it. You know, I, I, like you mentioned, you know, we wanted to have Terry on this show for this episode because his work is just so foundational, so influential in the, the world of advising. He first published his model in the 1970s and it was updated in, uh, I think, tw uh, 2012. So it's been with us for a while and the core elements of that model have not changed. So what I wanted to do first was to kind of just give us a refresher and kind of set the scene. When Terry O'Banion is talking about advising, what does this model look like? What should an advisor be doing? And so in his words, you know, when we talk about the purpose of academic advising in general, it's to help students select a program of study to meet their life and vocational goals. And so if I'm thinking about that piece of selecting a program of study, to me, that sounds a lot like what you were saying, Ross, about what your advising experience was like in college. And it's also similar to mine. The way that I see Terry's work starting to bridge this gap is that he's adding this piece of, but we're helping students select their program of study to meet their goals, their life and career goals. And he lays out a five-step process for that. You know, we need to help students explore their life goals. Then we need to help them explore their vocational goals. After that, once those things are clarified, only then will we begin to have those conversations about choosing a program of study, figuring out what courses to take. And then finally, the last step was like actually scheduling those courses. And what Terry says is that too often colleges are failing to move students through all of these steps. And many institutions assume that students have already done the first two steps, that they already know, they know why they're there, they know what their goals are, and they know what program aligns with those goals. And so the role of the advisor then is essentially kind of just helping them schedule those courses. But what Terry says, and I wholeheartedly believe this as well, is that that's an unrealistic expectation, especially, especially when we're talking about, you know, community colleges or institutions with large populations of underserved students. We can't expect that they are coming to us having already done those first two steps to really, if we are really uh, invested in and prioritizing student success, we have to make sure we're creating the time and state space for students to experience each of those steps and to have guidance and support as they're going through their steps. Something that I really love about Terry's model and his thinking about this is that he's very clear that this is a lot to do. And you know, you might be able to do it in a day but oftentimes this is going to take some time. And 
it really, it really does suggest a, a team approach. I think it's important to recognize that each of these steps requires different skills, different knowledge to be able to support students. You know, what it takes to be able to help someone articulate their life and career goals is going to be very different than the knowledge that's required to be able to help a student navigate different degree and career degree requirements. And so when we can have a team where people are assigned to support students in these different areas based on their strengths and skills, that we're, we're probably going to have a more effective system. So there's a lot that I love about Terry's model. I think the, the, the only thing that's really missing from for me, is an acknowledgement of the many challenges that a student might face throughout their college experience, such that even if they do get clear on their life and career goals, even if they pick the right program of study and the right courses, they still may struggle and they still may need support. And, you know, where does that student go? I think from Terry's perspective, the academic advisor might not be that person. But my question is, where does this fit in? How do we talk about this? So, you know, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of how we at DIA talk about advising as a function. What I love about our work is that that is our primary focus, is about how do we support students in, how do we identify students' strengths and challenges in, in such that we can support them throughout their college experience? So yeah, that's kind of my short lit review on, on Terry's model that has been so influential for a lot of the other researchers and practitioners whose models we'll be talking about in just a bit. So I, lots, so many great points and really great encapsulation of, of Terry's model. I mean, first thing I would say in response is like, Terry will always remind you that his model is one of only two that have ever been endorsed by Nakata as like full advising models. And with that, I'm still amazed at how often I'll talk with folks and they'll be like, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm like, how do you not know about like one of the two primary models of how to advise students? But the second thing is like that life goals issue. And whenever I talk with people about that, I always say, look, there's two clear examples of when students pick a major and they didn't think about how it aligns to their life goals. The one is when they major in nursing and they don't like the sight of blood, which happened to my aunt. She majored in nursing, got her degree, and then the first time she saw blood, she said, I'm done. This, I mean, this was like 60 years ago, so you know, different time. The second is when people major in like tourism or, or hospitality, and then you tell them, you know you're going to work every weekend for the next 10 years. You know, Friday, Saturday nights, every week, you're not getting those off. And that's where you have to think about. Does having that job, as much as you love it, align to what you like to do when you're not at your job? The third thing is really about, you know, the fact that Terry is obviously the founding president of the League for Innovation in the community college. And I would say, you know, just given my experience, far more, I mean, he's a former community college president, you know, far more experience and exposure and awareness in the community college sector. But if you think about kind of the general culture of advising, it's ironic that in the community college, this is a place where Terry's work has more traction when lower tuition, easier access. If ever there's a place where advising shouldn't, you know, maybe people might argue, shouldn't be trying to hone in life goals, right? Like this is a place for exploration and access. It would make more sense in the community college versus in a four-year space where sometimes you're paying forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, it's your responsibility to make sure this aligns with what students want to do, because they can't waste time, right? There's no exploratory semesters, and and I'm not saying that 
One is, is higher stakes or lower stakes. If you would think about which of these places would be more intuitively aligned to helping students focus on those goals, it would seem like the four-year space does seem to happen, or at least that this is talked about more in the community college space. And maybe that's because a lot of students coming in to explore and, and access and all of those issues. It is maybe we need more of a structure for helping them navigate that. I mean, there's kind of multiple ways of thinking about it. But as you were talking, that was something that really popped up to me is these very big differences in how advising works, as we'll talk about later on, in two and four-year spaces. And you obviously have to be aware of that before you start talking about whether a model should be adopted or you know whether this should be a guidepost for folks. Absolutely. The, the small thing that I was going to kind of just add on there, as you were talking about the student who gets into nursing, but is afraid of blood or scared or whatever. I, I completely agree about, especially in a four-year uh, institution, that students don't necessarily have a lot of time to explore and to make mistakes and to change their majors many times. Like a lot of times, all of that is going to have a financial cost. And at the same time, how many students, even if we do have a thorough conversation with them about their life and career goals in their first semester as a college student, you know, how realistic is it, is it for us to expect that those students aren't going to grow and change in ways that their life and career goals may also grow and change? And for me, I think what that signals is the importance of a having systems of support for a student throughout their college experience because they may need to revisit that goal setting and those types of conversations later on down the road and also building in flexibility into the 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 college process the the journey through college to support the fact that we know that there are lots of students who they won't have this linear path great thoughts it's i'm so glad you mentioned that because I remember I was working on a project when I was at ETS for the council graduate schools. The short story of why we were doing this was CGS was really trying to get more folks to think about graduate school. While we were kind of sitting around talking about the scope of the project, uh, one of the other researchers and I, you know, we kind of said, it's really funny if you think about most kids, 10, 12 year olds, especially if you think about underserved populations and either, you know, poverty stricken areas or deep urban centers or rural areas, they have a hard time linking higher education to what people do. Probably the only time they have a chance to do that is when they're sitting in school and they can look at their teacher and be like, I know they went to school to be a teacher. And I oftentimes especially feel that's why some people fall into education is that's something they've seen people do a lot. But you know, when you're talking about forensic accounting or chemical engineering, I think especially a, a traditional 18 year old might come in thinking they know what that Hell, I didn't know what industrial organizational psychology really was when I signed up for a master's program. Yep. And that was with a whole course in it in undergrad, right? We forget that as adults, how recent our ignorance of those things was that we didn't even really know what we were doing, let alone how could this student not understand that, you know, what the schedule for this job is going to be like or what career opportunities are going to be like. And so I do really think that work is critical. And I, I don't want to put the kind of ROI, time and money label. It's, it's important for everyone. But you're right, it's got to be multifaceted. It's got to be longitudinal. And, and I think this is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of daunting is the word that comes to mind that we pick Terry's 50-year-old model to talk about. All we're going to talk about for the rest of these things is how that's not enough and how there are other things we need to be doing. And, and even that, as we get through it, it's a lot. This is just is reinforcing our point of how much is put on to advisors and how difficult that job is. So 
Absolutely. I want to shift a little bit to our second resource, which is one that I picked. And I want to preface this resource or, or really this series of resources with a little bit of a dirty secret, which is not a secret if you've ever really talked to me one-on-one uh, -on -one without cameras or microphones around. I am not a fan of grit, especially when we talk about our work. People will be like, oh yeah, like, I love grit and I love growth mindset. And I'll be like, I don't, uh, no. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't need to go deep into it. There's really great work by Marcus Corday at the University of Illinois. But the long and the short of grit is really, I can find problems with the underlying theory. I can find problems with the measurement and research. I can find real problems with how it's been implemented. And perhaps most of all, what the consumer ends up with at the end of grit research. This understanding of we just need to work harder, which doesn't really help anybody. Anyhow, at least that's what most people take away in my experience. Growth mindset is, is really close to grit in terms of popularity and people resonating with it. And I like growth mindset a lot more. The challenge with growth mindset is people drastically misunderstand the theoretical underpinnings of that. And as a result, it ends up to the takeaway that they get is not really what Carol Dweck intended. Um, so if you go Google Carol Dweck growth mindset, you will find last I checked, and it's been a year or two since I did this, she has hardly not published that I could find a peer-reviewed empirical study with growth mindset. Her empirical true research is on theories of intelligence. And if you understand growth mindset, you know that growth mindset roots itself in this idea that if you believe that success and intelligence are a product of effort, you have a growth mindset because you believe you can try more and improve your intelligence, improve your success. If you don't think that, if you think that success and intelligence are a product of innate ability, you have a fixed mindset because it's innate. You only have so much. That's all you're going to get. That's what theories of intelligence talks about. What growth mindset talks about is the extrapolations, the antecedents of all that, which is if you do that, if you have a growth mindset, you're more likely to accept feedback because it's not critical. It's only telling you where to channel your effort. You're more likely to take on challenging tasks because if you fail with a fixed mindset, that's just a reminder that you're not good. If you fail with a growth mindset, that tells you where to practice. You know, failure is feedback. What comes from that same idea? What really bothers me is when I talk with folks and they will say, oh, we can't tell them that. We want to have a growth mindset. And they think that a growth mindset simply means you are constantly focused on improvement. And that is exactly the opposite of what Carol Dweck's work will tell you. What Carol Dweck will tell you is, if Andrea, if you're advising me and we have a, a growth mindset, both of us, you can say, hey, that project failed terribly. Or you're not doing well at this. Because that's feedback because I have a growth mindset and that's actually with a growth mindset is the best time to give negative information. And, and I say, I always say bad news, but constructive feedback that, and, and people constantly misunderstand. And so I think that that's really critical to understand for an advising perspective, especially when you're talking about the differential impact of, of interventions across underserved populations or students that are unlikely to succeed. When we view those as sensitive populations and we say, oh, well, we can't give them the bad news, right? We're going to let them keep doing the things they've been doing that got them here. And I'm not talking about like, oh, if you're a first-gen student or you're a student of poverty. But I do mean if you're, you know, if you're a first-gen student from a single-parent household with low economic means, 
You need to know that if you go about the way things that other students like you have, it's not going to work out. Then we just, that's the way data work. And that's as much our fault as theirs, or more our fault than theirs, actually. But the point is, I need to be able to say to you, hey, this is not good. Or, or here are the challenges we're going to face. But because we know that effort is what matters the most, here's what we're going to do. And I'm here to support you. That is where improvement and change happen. And this idea that we just need to be nicer, whether there's students that are struggling academically or whatever, you know, whenever we see that situation of a need for intervention, the idea that we can't dive into the bad news of it is really detrimental. What we need to do is understand what growth mindset teaches us and how that actually helps us give bad news or constructive feedback so that we can make improvements. And I think that's a critical paradigm to understand for advice. I love it. And it's definitely got me thinking on our assessment, Isaac, we have a factor called effort focus that tries to capture the extent to which a student has this kind of growth mindset. I guess my question would be, if we know that we have students that don't have a growth mindset, that have a fixed mindset, does that change how we communicate with them? Do we need to get them to a place where they have a growth mindset in order to have these, these conversations or to share this information in this way? Or is it enough that we're using a growth mindset approach to how we craft the language of the communication? Because I think what people might be worried about or what you might can be concerned about is maybe we want students to have this growth mindset and we're crafting our communications with this growth mindset language, but our students' mindset is so fixed that all they hear is I'm bad, I suck, and it has a negative impact. What would you kind of say to that? Awesome question. It's got to be both. You can't say hold everything until we get this student to have a, a growth mindset, but you should be spending some intervention time on doing that because it's going to make the rest of your relationship easier. At the same time, you kind of need to put a filter on, on interactions to say, I need to know how this is going to be perceived. And I personally, I struggle with that a lot. I remember I had a graduate student when I was, you know, had my first job. And, you know, I'm an assessment guy. I would say this. I think assessment and growth mindset go hand in glove because you can't try to be a person that gives people data if you don't believe they can improve. And you can't come to someone and say, hey, you're in the fourth percentile if you don't also believe that they can get better. And so I remember, you know, I've always just kind of thought this way about things, even before Carol Dweck came along. And I remember telling a grad student like, oh, I'm really disappointed. This, this report is terrible. And especially I thought like, you're a graduate student. You don't know what you're doing. You should only blame me because you only got this far because I didn't help you out enough, right? It was clearly my fault and not theirs. And that student and I remain in contact. And every time I see her, she brings up me telling her how disappointed I was. 20 years later, she still remembers that. And that was because I was trying to build a growth mindset, but I didn't also filter the information given where she was. And so it's both is the answer, which I know no advisor wants to hear that they've got to do all of those things, but that's, that's the best way to approach it. So. This episode is brought to you by the League for Innovation in the Community College. The League's 2024 Innovations Conference will be held March 17th to 20th in Anaheim, California. Find out more at www.league.org. Thanks also to our sponsor, DIA Higher Education Collaborators. Want to understand your students' sense of belonging? 
Want to use vital student data to predict success? How about train your faculty and staff to better integrate a growth mindset into their work with students? DIA's Isaac platform can help you do all this and more. Find out more at www.isaac.net. That's I-S-S-A-Q.net. Now, back to the show. We were kind of talking about Terry's advising model and how there are you know, a lot of things that have come out more recently that say that in addition to these things, we also need to be doing many other things. Um, and this article that I'm talking about is from, it was uh, written by Bill Johnson, and it talks about the difference between what he calls transformational advising and transactional advising. And what I think is really interesting about that is uh, he actually talks about Terry's model almost kind of, kind of bridges the gap between what he calls transactional advising and then what he shares as his vision for advising, which is transformational advising. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And I know that a question you had kind of posed to me when we were talking about these for this episode was how do the perspectives of Terry and Bill in terms of transformational versus transactional advising, like how do those differ? I think that it's a it's this is a, a great conversation and I love this article because I think it kind of summarizes a lot in this space. If we talk about transactional advising, what Bill says is that transactional advising is the advising that a lot of us grew up with. And in that mode of advising, uh, your advisor is essentially just a service provider whose job is to get students into the right classes for the upcoming semester. So they're super focused on addressing students' immediate needs and doing so as quickly and efficiently as possible because it's a transaction. And you know, what one thing that I really appreciated that uh, he highlighted when talking about this is that when you're having this transactional approach, that means that there's typically almost no personalization of the advising experience. You know, the agenda for advising appointments is usually predetermined by the advisor or the advising office, and the student's role tends to be very, very passive. If you contrast that with Terry's model, there's a lot more engagement between the advisor and the student to understand their life and career goals. And that's a, again, there's much collaboration that happens there to make sure that both the student and the advisor are on the same page and that the student is having an experience that's helping them achieve their goals. I think Terry's model is really trying to push back on this idea of transactional advising. Unfortunately, like you said, there's still a lot of people in, uh, in the advising world who aren't familiar with Terry's model and may still subscribe to this kind of transactional view of advising. I was actually talking to one of our institutions and she was telling me about how she has, in, under in her office, they have created an advising office and they have advisors who are supposed to be 
supporting students a little bit more holistically, helping them have these conversations about their goals and connect that and all these types of things. And what she shared is that her work was so misunderstood by leadership and they still had this very strong transactional approach to advising. And that was reflected in the resources that they made available for her office and her advisors. It made it very difficult. It continues to make it very difficult for her to do the type of advising work that she would want something that's maybe more in alignment with Terry's model because there's so many folks who still have this transactional mindset. What Bill goes on to say is that Terry's model is a great was a great stepping stone for us, but what he envisions is something that he calls transformational advising. And with transformational advising, an advisor is going to be someone who collaborates with students to help them articulate and achieve their academic, career, and personal goals. And in that process, they may wear a wide variety of hats, depending on what the student needs. Sometimes they may be a coach or a teacher or a mentor or a cheerleader. But, you know, I think it all starts under this transformational advising perspective. It all starts with building a relationship where students feel comfortable, you know, comfortable sharing their dreams and aspirations, their strengths and challenges, the things that they may feel very vulnerable about. And according to that transformational advising perspective, you know, when students feel understood and they trust that their advisor cares about them and believes in them and is committed to helping them realize their potential, they're more inspired to, as Bill says, do the work to grow and shape their future, their future success in education. So they're taking more of an active role in the advising process and in education as a whole. And what I really love about that perspective is that, A, we're focusing so much more on students and their agency and how they contribute to the advising process. And then we're also recognizing that an advisor's role is not just to kind of support students in identifying what their goals are, but to help them along that entire process and to do so through building a relationship. That part is, for me, is just so critical important. I think back or my own advising when I was an undergrad and my, my advisor was not someone who I would ever want to be vulnerable with or share things that I was struggling with or, you know, any of that type of thing. I just wasn't comfortable doing that. And because of that, that advisor may have been able to help me with some things, but from my perspective, they would never be in a space to be able to help me with those things because I wasn't comfortable sharing them. And so I really love Bill's perspective on that. And I'm like, this is an article that I hope everybody reads. <laughs> you know, it's funny to me. I've, there's so many metaphors firing off in my brain as you were talking. But, you know, the thing that I kind of come back to is you know, think about instructional quality. We know scientifically that the best way for a student to learn is to have one-on-one -on -one individualized instruction, mm -hmm. right? It's every time it's always like, yeah, that's the gold standard. But the only thing that stops us from doing that is, is resources. And let's be frank, money, right? We just can't afford to give every student a dedicated teacher. But at the same time, you, know, you think about advising and you think just about student success in general. Since you know, 50 years ago, when we started talking about retention with Vincent Tinto, you know, we probably could have known man, we should really have as much support that's co-curricular or even extracurricular as we do. Why doesn't the student get 15 hours a week talking with someone about their success, just like at 15 hours a week talking with someone about their learning? And the fact is, yeah, like probably should have like a very highly trained 
individualized person that can help them with scheduling with all, you know, and yeah, it might take a team, but that's actually because we're only not willing to invest the resources and training yep. in someone that it would need to take to do that right. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the sad part. And it goes back to what we say when we talk with institutions about this is where we should be. We should have this functionality. And then it's working with them to figure out, well, how do we cobble together the resources we have in order to get there? So I didn't go too far down the rabbit hole of the systemic challenges we have. We're going to definitely conclude with, with that conversation. But that to me was the problem is in so many things where we just decide to do things worse because we don't want to spend the resources to do them right. Mm-hmm. And I think advising is, is one of those areas. And I'm not, that's not an indemnification of advisors, right? That's an indemnification of, of, of a system of higher education that just won't invest enough to give that, the students the type of support that they need to get there. And yeah. not all places. Some places do it really well. Most places don't. And one of the things that's a real part of that for me is, and you talked a lot about that relationship. What we often don't articulate about that relationship, you know, we talk a lot in our training of advisors and coaches on rapport building, right? That if you have the time and, and space, the first 30 or 60 minutes should really just be getting to know each other, right? And that's, again, pipe dream we get to have because we don't actually have the caseloads. But at the core of that, what we miss and the value of that relationship, that rapport, is the ability to individualize the path. Mm. And that really, I think, is the problem. I mean, that's why individualized instruction works, right? Because I can give you, Andrea, what's best for you. If I get five people, I then suddenly lose the ability to customize, right? And so I'm using, this is a transition, by the way. This is leading to a point. So what I wanted to talk about was actually the work by Howard Margolis, who is someone we cite a good bit, though I would say, you know, not someone whose name I see everywhere, but in in looking through uh, what Howard has published with others, I think it's some of the most helpful work that anyone who works with a student could ever find. And I say that because what Howard talks about is working with unconfident learners. You know, we talk about academic self-efficacy, how, you know, underprivileged, whatever you want to say. When you're talking about those students who, without some intervention, are unlikely to be successful, we just said it, right? Without intervention, meaning we've got to do something different for this student than what we do for every other student. And when you're talking about students who aren't confident, that have low self-efficacy, I mean, self-efficacy is one of the arguably biggest predictors of any educational outcome at any time, at any point in the spectrum. We always can correlate self-efficacy to any outcome. The question becomes, how do you work with students who don't have it? Mm-hmm. And what Margolis says in, in several publications that we will put in our reference list is you have to work differently with them. Self-efficacy, and we talk about this a lot, is not like sense of belonging. It's not like study skills where you jump in and give an intervention. And as a result, the student improves. Yeah. Self-efficacy is about you working with the student differently to help foster that. So I, I found actually, I had not seen this article, even though it's maybe almost 20 years old at this point. But Margolis wrote an article, and I'm going to actually just scroll down and find the title of it because it was really cool. Improving Self-Efficacy and Motivation, What to Do, What to Say. And so he talks about the kind of the theoretical underpinning and then gets really tactical in terms of what to do and say. So in terms of doing, he says, plan moderately challenging tasks, use peer mentors, you know, teach learning strategies. He gives you as an advisor these things that you can do when you're, ta- when you're working with a student that doesn't have you know, strong confidence in themselves. But then he also talks about things to say 
which is basically here's how to craft this relationship, right? So stress successes whenever they happen. Encourage effort. One of the cool things that I, I found in this article that I hadn't seen in his writing before was this idea of attributions. When things go well, when things go wrong, pointing out how and why that happened. And he talks about using functional versus dysfunctional attributions. But that really resonated with me that, you know, if a student turns in a paper and they get an F on, how are you going to talk about that? Are you going to say that professor's a hard grader, something that's outside of the student's control? Are you going to talk about they're just not getting this subject, something that's internal, intrinsic? Or are you going to say, hey, how much time did we spend getting ready? Did we study as much as we could? Did we use an outline? Did we turn in a draft and get feedback on that? Okay, we didn't do any of those things and it didn't turn out well. Let's talk about those attributions. Again, going back to growth mindset, what, what Margola says is you have to teach the student to understand how to interpret those phenomena in a way that will help them shape, grow, and mold their behavior in the future. And you do that by helping the student attribute things in a, and I would say a functional way, or as he would say, a functional way, I would say kind of a growth mindset way, but regardless, an, an ex, not external, you're not trying to take it away from the student, but something that's within their control, you know, internal, external locus of control, if you want to apply those terms. I, I think that, that Margolis' stuff is some of the best work I've seen in terms of giving you actual tips rather than saying, Here's a way of thinking and then not figuring out how that's going to change your job tomorrow. Margolis' work will help you do that. I don't know if if Margolis talks about this specifically in his article, but I, I know that one of the things as I was doing my research into self-efficacy that really resonated with me for my own life was this idea that in order to build self-efficacy, you students need to experience success, but it's not enough for them to experience success at any task. It has to be a challenging task, something that they feel is challenging and they are able to be successful, that they're able to be successful despite those challenges. Of course, that requires a lot of scaffolding and there's a lot of, I think some of the more specific things that Margolis talks about can help in kind of structuring that. It was a, a revelation for me to realize that uh, when we're talking about building a student's self-efficacy, we can't lower the bar, lower our expectations, and kind of just try to help them be successful. We need to make sure that we're providing the scaffolding to help them accomplish difficult things, and that that plays such a big role. And I will add, and to get nerdy psychology about this for just one second, but I only do it because it's an important distinction. If you go back to, to Bandura, who's the, the, the father of self-efficacy, right? There's actually an article, Andre and I were talking before the show about my ability to remember names and dates. And I said, I'm not actually good at it. I just only keep referring to the same things over and over again. So I have a few things remembered. I don't have everything remembered, but this is one I've got. It's an article by Frank Paharis, P-A-J-A-R-E-S, written in 2006 about building measures of self-efficacy. I've cited this article probably 50 times. And what Paharis points out that's really cool is when you talk about self-efficacy, what Bandura really is referring to is specific tasks, right? Like I always say, you know, the difference between efficacy and confidence, right, is one's a, a belief that you can do it, the other's a feeling. I believe I'm a good singer. I don't feel good about doing it. So generally why I only sing in the shower, because I, I think I sing well, but I'm not, you know, don't feel great enough about it to go do it you know, in front of people. What he says is when you're talking about improving self-efficacy, especially from a measurement perspective, the more specific you get, 
the more efficacious you will be in your ability to change. Mm -hmm. Because if, if I'm talking with you, Andrea, about talking about recording a podcast, I know you have confidence in yourself to do a lot of things, but the podcast has been new. And so we can walk through things or structure tasks around the podcast that will help you build efficacy in that. But if you talk about something, and we run into this all the time, it's, it's frankly a bit of a challenge with the way we talk about it on Isaac. We're talking about your efficacy to succeed in college. Yeah. It, you're right. It's broad. And in that case, it's more, and Paharis Bandura would both tell you this, it's more a personality trait. Mm. And so you're right. If we're not, if we're talking about somebody who's just kind of, you know, think about your learned helplessness, don't think I can do anything, you know, really discourage students. We're at a broader level of intervention and getting them to pass, you know, their statistics course might help them with their statistics self-efficacy. But that's not maybe going to help them in their perception of how well they're going to do overall. Mm. You know, our friend and colleague, Javaro Russell, right? Javaro and I went to grad school together. Very famously, Javaro did not unpack the boxes in his house the whole first semester we were in grad school. <laughs> that's global self-efficacy. That's a man who doesn't believe he's going to make it. <laughs> Only after he got through that first semester did he have that kind of global attribution again mm. to say, I can do it. I can hack it. And because of that, he was able to unpack his boxes. You know, just an example of, of really understanding when you say self-efficacy, it is important to distinguish between, am I talking about their ability to do a specific thing or am I talking about how they view themselves? And when we're getting into the latter issue, we're getting real close to that counseling space yeah. because that's kind of the precursor to a lot of other negative psychological outcomes and in general, just lack of well-being. We don't even need to get clinical about it. It's just when people don't believe they're good enough, not a lot of good things come out of that. I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that was going to be my question was kind of like how what what does an advisor do with that information and I think it's helpful to recognize that at some point you may be going into the counseling space and you may need someone who has more expertise there. But I'm glad that we kind of were talking about this idea of unconfident learners or yeah, these learners that might not have I don't even know if unconfidence a word by I the know, way. I know, I know, but you said every time I say it I'm like is that right? <laughs> I think it is because incompetent is not better. So non-confident, unsure. That, that doesn't carry the same weight. I'm Googling opposite of confident right now. You <laughs> go ahead and talk. I will tell you what I come up with with, with my Google search. Hilarious. But, you know, I think that what I wanted to transition to was a report that Ceci put out called the, the Power of Advising in Community Colleges. You know, when I think about those students who may be coming in, we have a lot more first-generation students, a lot of students who, who, who may not have a clear vision of their future in higher education and may have more struggles with self-efficacy that, you know, advising may have to play a different role, or maybe we need to be thinking about advising differently in that context. And so I was really happy to see Ceci putting together this report. I think that they have, they compiled data from tens of thousands of advisors across hundreds of institutions to, to start to, you know, I think that they kind of have three big messages that they're, they're trying to communicate. One being that 
you know, how how important advising is in a community college space, also giving us a sense of what the current advising landscape looks like, um, and then providing some inspiration or some recommendations about what it might look like to transform advising in a community college space to make it more effective. But before I get into that, I, I know we were talking about this a little bit, and I, I wanted to hear more of your perspective on it. We talked about how, you know, advising or community colleges in general are that a major value is access and providing access to more students. That's often, you know, for our students who can't matriculate directly into a four-year institution, community colleges can be an incredible stepping stone. And, you know, from your perspective... Or, or, or a meritorious outcome. Or, in or, or a meritorious have to be a stepping stone for all of my community college partners. That is very true. That is very true. But I do think that community colleges play a such a critical role in making higher education accessible to diverse students. When we think about DEI goals, like community colleges are carrying so much of that burden. And I'm wondering from your perspective, but you think about advising, what are the things that they need to be thinking about differently or how does that look different in a community college setting? I think that when I think of those differences, I, I totally get your question in terms of like, are there population differences? Are there some things mm -hmm. different about the students that we need to be thinking? Yeah. Am I right in, 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 in pinpointing your question? I think so. It's knowing that we have different students, knowing that we might have different perspectives on our purpose as an institution, how does that all come together to inform conversations about advising? Yeah, so I don't want to jump too much down into the, the issues and, and practical challenges. Okay. And I also want to say the question you're asking is very common, right? It's to say, well, what's different about the students? I would argue the biggest challenge in community college advising is not about the students. It's not about their goals. It's about the structure. You mentioned access. We've been talking a little bit about access throughout this show. And community college advising for, I would say, 99% of the cases I've seen is built on that issue of access. You can't have advisors that work nine to five and have a dedicated course load with you know, 100, 200, 500 students in the way that we often see it at a four-year school. There's a lot of practical limitations to that. A, Students are on campus all hours of the day. So if the advisors are only there during office hours, they might not be there when they need them. B, students are transferring a lot. You know, C, there's so many majors and so many, and D, non-credit students. I can go down the list of why that traditional kind of what we would call a case management approach to advising is not readily adopted at two-year institutions, community colleges. Instead, because we want students to be able to walk in and get help at any time from anyone, we build this kind of one-stop shop, air quote, uh, student success center where the bursar and financial aid and, and scheduling and advising, tutoring, they're all in the same building. And the idea is a student can walk in and no matter when, no matter where, they can find someone to help. Mm -hmm. I understand from an access perspective, that's a great idea. But the biggest challenge to advising in community colleges is we don't take the time to build that relationship you talked about. And our systems are not built to do it because we, we just don't. We, we, prep, we would rather value that access. And to me, that's the biggest challenge. Because if you do have a population, and I'm not, this is a hypothesis, it's not something I'm saying is based in data. If we believe, let's say for example, that community college students are less confident, 
or that they do feel like they belong a little less or that they're, they don't necessarily have a goal identified. Access doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter that they can come in and sit down with someone if they don't trust them, that that person doesn't know what they need, that that person hasn't built a relationship and that that person can't build a path. And so I think that's the challenge. And especially as we get into the SESI report, some of what it talks about is we keep saying all these things advising needs to do. And it's not just scheduling classes. Well, how am I supposed to do that with a student who just walked in and only has 15 minutes with me, right? It's just that the structure of advising in those settings is not built to meet these broader goals. And that's why at the institution you were talking about, who will remain nameless, but I know exactly who you're talking about. That's why they have all these people and no one understands what they do. They're a community college and they just don't, they, the structure is not built to do all these things we're talking about. It's still meant to be an accessible system. It's like fast food. You can come in, get a cheap meal. You're always gonna be able to get it, but is it gonna be the best thing you ever had? No. Is it gonna, you know, is it, is it good for you? Is it gonna get you to your goals you need? Probably not, but you can get it quick. You can get it easy. You can get it cheap. And, and not that community colleges are a lesser quality. I'm saying that if you think about the way fast food restaurants are built, it's a model built on access. I wanna be able to have food now, cheap. With advising in a kind of one-stop shop center, it's the same premise. I want efficiency and quickness. And, and you're missing out on the quality and depth of development that you could have, even though, and again, it goes back to taking the time to invest those resources, to hire people that are sufficiently trained and capable of doing that. And that takes a lot. I'm not saying that it's easy to flip that switch, but that's the major impediment in advising in two-year institutions versus four years. And you know, as you were talking about that, we are gonna get into the SESI article, but it just reminded me, we, um, we're gonna be sharing our references in our show notes but you know, I was reading this article that was published by, or this report from the Chronicle called The Future of Advising. And one of the institutions that they interviewed um, and spotlighted was talking about how they were coming up against these same kind of structural issues. And they realized that they could not do, they could not fulfill their mission with the current staffing that they had. And so they drastically expanded their advising program. They hired, I think, maybe like 20 more advisors, what have you, um, drastically reduced caseloads per advisor. And the question that they got time and time again was like, how are you affording that? But they had actually done the research to show that for every advisor that we hired, we increased our retention rates by this much. And essentially how they, what they ended up concluding is that the advisors have paid for themselves by providing this additional support to students. It, yes, it was very hard on the front end to completely change our structures and processes. And it did require investment. But we've seen, a, a, I know we said we don't want to get all, ton, down the ROI um, path, but they saw a major return on their investment that encouraged them and made them realize like this was the right decision for us. I have never been so sad that we have an audio only podcast because as you're talking, I have like this huge like smirk and head nod that people can't but you're absolutely right. Again, you can kind of go back to the point of overcoming problems versus seeking solutions. And it's this idea of, well, we can't afford it. And you can't not afford it. There's a direct correlation between your expenditure on support staff and your outcomes. And if you're a tuition-driven institution, it's absolutely going to pay off if you put them in the right place and if you train them and if they're working in the way that they should using a lot of stuff we're talking about. Yeah, it, it makes a ton of sense to me. And if you're if you're listening to this and you're nodding your head as well, but 
you know, thinking about the folks on your campus who maybe don't have this perspective. You're at a community college. This article from SESI, The Power of Advising, that's exactly the message that they're communicating. And they do so with a lot of compelling data. You know, some of the things that really stood out to me from the article, they talk about how, first of all, when they survey students and faculty and advisors, they all overwhelmingly say that advising is very important for a student's success, that it's one of the most, if not the most important function on a college campus for students and their success. But then they spend a lot of time kind of highlighting, you know, some of the, the benefits of that, uh, of advising. But then they say that when we actually survey students, 22% of them say that they ha have not met with an advisor at all. And then there's 44% of students who report meeting with an advisor, but being only somewhat satisfied. And there's almost 10% of students who say that they're not at all satisfied. And so it's, it's this disparity between how important our students and our faculty and advisors are saying the function of advising is, and then the actual you know number of students who are engaging with advising and then finding it to be as beneficial or what they hoped it would be. And so I start from this place of, are our community colleges value valuing advising and are they creating intentional structures to make sure that every student can is receiving advising and when it boils down to this idea of you know well are the right people valuing advising one thing that I, I pulled out and again I said that the report talks a lot about a lot of different benefits that they found one of the things that they talk about is engagement and they show that students who see an advisor even just once are more engaged. And then students who spend more time with their advisor, either in longer sessions or more frequent sessions are even more engaged still. And so it's like, we, we see the importance of advising, but we are not necessarily meeting those expectations for our students. And then we know that more advising is better but then they have data to show that of the community colleges that they surveyed, advisors that they talked to, 31% of them said that their first advising session with a student is 15 minutes or less. And there were only, I think, like 16% of advisors that said that they have a session with students that lasts more than 30 minutes. Now, going back to all of these things that we say that ideal advising needs to have or should have and the ways that we want to support our students and building those relationships and doing all of these things you have 15 minutes or less to do that with a student, that's your first outreach to a student, that's going to be very challenging. I appreciate that the SESI article kind of highlights this to say to these advisors in community colleges, you're not crazy. You are overburdened. You, you're, you have been given an impossible <laughs> task. And we recognize that you find value in this and that the students find value in this idea of more comprehensive advising. But you're not set up for success right now. You know, I thought it was cool. I think in this part of the, the article that they're more talking to administrators and those who have a role in creating the structures of advising. They actually use the example of what advising and what looks like for student athletes. And they throw that up as like an example of what comprehensive advising might look like. And I thought it was really cool that they really emphasize that, you know, 
the reason that the student athletes are more likely to be successful is because they're more likely to experience the advising, the types of advising experiences that are associated with higher engagement and success. Things like being required to meet with an advisor, meeting with advisors more frequently, and then meeting with the same advisors throughout their uh, academic career. You know, I think that the article itself is very aspirational. It's, 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 and I think its purpose is to try to motivate community college administrators to recognize the value of advising and to start to ask the right questions to see how they can shift their institutions towards a more holistic advising model. And, you know, some of those questions that they recommend when you're starting to kind of evaluate the, the advising system that you have in place currently is, you know, what does your, how does your college determine how many advisors it needs? Do advisors talk with students about their outside commitments? Are some students receiving more comprehensive advising services than other? What do your students and advisors say about advising? A lot of other questions that can start to maybe help identify some of these key challenges and paired with this data about how impactful advising can be can hopefully start to move these community colleges in a more in a more student success focused direction. Awesome. That was a really great recap of that. And it's just and I say that not just for its its accuracy and validity, but for the ideas it was sparking in my mind because it really frustrates me sometimes how it's a simple math problem. How many students do we have? How often are they meeting with advisors now? And so you can do the math of how many staff, how many hours a week do they have available for meetings? Like you can figure that out. Then you can also figure out questions you pointed out. Like, okay, well, if a student meets with that advisor, how much does that boost retention? And then you can start to do it. I mean, I hate to put like a manufacturing or behavioral economics slant on it, but that's really all it is. I mean, you have a, you have a group of students. You don't even be started on the whole mandatory advising thing. It's another one of those things that works and we just don't do it because it's hard. Mm. It drives me nuts. Mm. Um, so I'm not going to go any farther down this <laughs> rabbit hole because I'm just going to end up angry. But I do want to say, I'm looking at the clock. The, we've talked about some really good resources. Yeah. And I think we've put out some ideas. Here are some ways to do advising well. Implicit in that is that our current system isn't awesome. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to talk about how do we get better, two things I want to point to. The first is an article from Adolji and Mishwad that we're going to link. And it's not necessarily um, so much in the, the, the findings of it. It's a single institution study from a small private liberal arts school in the Northeast. I actually didn't try to figure out which school it was. But the point is this. It's very much a really good example of an evaluation of advising. Mm -hmm. And you know, so they come in with questions like, what are the reasons students meet with advisors? What are students' perceptions of it? A lot of the stuff you're talking about, how much time do they get? What are the, how much time are they spending per topic, right? Is there a relationship between using advising and satisfaction with advising, engagement, retention, all of those questions that frankly, there's no reason we shouldn't be able to answer as institutions. I can't think of any more important thing to study then how effective are we at supporting students and their success yeah. through the function that is explicitly designed to do it. Absolutely. The second resource I would point to is that Chronicle article that you alluded to briefly, which is the future of advising. We have now gotten two of those reports from the Chronicle, which they release every now and then. This is not a plug. We're not, they're not a paid sponsor of the podcast, <laughs> but they actually cited us in the, their partnerships report, which was really cool. But this new future of advising report we got just to read for this podcast 
And Andrea, who's taken a deeper dive than I have at this point, has really liked it and seems to think there's some really good stuff that are, that are helping folks think about some of these challenges. Would you agree? Absolutely. And like I said, I know that we are running out of time, so I'm not going to you know, spend too much on this. But what I will say is if you're thinking very seriously about your advising structures and you're really grappling with some of the, the, the things that we've been talking about so far in this episode, I would really consider reading that report. I think they do an incredible job of, first of all, highlighting what the major challenges are for advisors. What are the things that are getting in the way of advisors being able to do this kind of transformational work with students? They talk about things like from the perspective of working environment, again, how advisors tend to be overburdened and under-resourced. But then even on top of that, the fact that if we think about the opportunities for professional development and advancement for advisors, often there's not much. Oftentimes advisors are kind of expected to stay in this entry-level position. And because of that, there's a ton of turnover. And when we're asking advisors to be kind of experts in all these areas and wear all these different hats and do all these things with students, but they're all new and they're all kind of learning about the processes of the institution. You have so many advisors who are kind of stuck in that place. They don't have a chance to build the expertise that they need in order to be able to support students well. You know, they also talk about the challenges, something that stood out to me, especially because we are in in the ed tech spaces, they talked about the importance of, you know, being able to balance technology. A major challenge is that an advisor has 15 minutes to talk to a student and they only have 15 minutes to prepare for that conversation. And in order to gather all the information that they need about that student, they have to open up five, six, seven different screens and hunt down all of that stuff. And so the, you know, the question becomes, even for a product like Isaac, we know that it has a lot of value, but we have to think about from the advisor's perspective, how do we integrate this in a way that it becomes something that's useful and not something that's another obstacle or another thing that they feel obligated to do, but it's something that's easy for them to, to get that information. And it, we have a very, they have a very clear understanding of how to integrate it with their other sources of information. So they talk about a lot of these different types of challenges. And then what I love so much is that they spend just as much time talking about strategies. In each of the areas that they talk about, this is a challenge or a barrier. They also talk about here is a strategy that here are various strategies that we can use. And they use specific examples from in specific institutions who are already doing this transformational work. So if you have a chance to read that, I would absolutely encourage it. I feel like I learned so much and I, I, I walked away feeling inspired and having some, some clear ideas of what it could look like to, to move from this more transactional approach to a more transformational one. And so you really great summary and, and plug. I hope the Chronicle gives us something for it. <laughs> so before we leave, I do want to talk about, and you just alluded to one of the things that we had talked about getting ready for this show about sort of balancing technology. And I will tell you as someone who's, you know, spent the last mumble teen years trying to work with institutions on using tools and things like that, it's really shocking how when you talk about a solution, I won't even just say ed tech, I'll talk about anything. When you're talking about getting an institution to implement something, how far down the line effectiveness is mm -hmm. as a criterion. Ease of adoption right now is the number one thing because everyone's overworked, everyone's under-resourced. If this isn't easy for me to use, that's non-starter, right? 
-hmm. You talk about integration with other things. If I have to have three logins to get all these data about students, I'm not going to use them. I'm only going to go to the thing that I like. Right? So it's really kind of funny to me. And I totally get it, right? But it is kind of sad when you think about if I could tell someone, hey, this will improve you know, retention by 30%, but you need a separate login and it's going to take a two-hour training to understand how to use it, they wouldn't do it. The, the, the value of effectiveness falls so far down the line and is such a small sort of uh, space on the rubric, if you will. It's, it's really kind of interesting. And it goes back to those structural issues of if I have the space to actually be able to engage with a new approach and to be able to see the value in it and all that type of stuff, then I probably would be willing to put in the work. But if I if my brain space is already scattered in 20 different directions and I already feel like I'm behind and everything, then yeah, I'm going to go for the easiest approach. And so it's like we have to at some point we have to figure out chicken and the egg. We have to figure out where are we going to step in and say, this is not working and we're going to have to start all over again with some of those questions, like you said, from that, that Edulia Mishad article. It's like you're reading my mind as I'm looking through the, the outline. I was like, I want to go next to structural changes, but you got there. Great. The one other thing I want to talk about, and I want to bring this up, it, not something I've heard other people talk about. I don't think it would be a hugely popular opinion. Um, <laughs> But it is the essential human resource challenges that exist. And advising is not alone in this. But frankly, if you look at it, you're saying, okay, advisors are the people with this huge burden that we're really expecting to kind of carry the load in terms of student success. And yet we're under-resourcing them. We're hiring people that are new in the field without an upward trajectory or opportunity for promotion. We're not going to give them a ton of training, you know, or not if we're not going to... A bunch of problems... And, and the equation I'll draw is, is this story that I told you, Andrea, yesterday. When I was in a moment of transition in my career, I got a call from someone who's a president at a community college in the rural Western U.S. I will, that's all I'll say. And I remember looking at the job posting. It was like a VP of institutional research or something like that. And I was like, well, this, this would be a good job, but like, I have to move out to the middle of nowhere. And you're going to pay me half of what I'd make. And basically, it's this issue of like, and I was viewing it from the data assessment perspective. And I was hit by this epiphany of how is a rural, small community college, are you ever going to hope to get a good person to fill this role, given what you're offering, where you're located, you know, all those sorts of things, and the scarcity of people with those skill sets. Mm -hmm. and, and so I remember thinking, if you even if you got someone to take that job and they were awesome, in two years they're gone because they can make triple that in the private sector. And I similar parallels in advising where all we're taking are these people, you know, with maybe a new bachelor's or or if you're in a really good place, a master's degree, you're gonna have an entry-level position. The only promotion you're gonna have available to you, or the most likely promotion, is to supervise other advisors. So we're gonna take you out of the, the job you're doing now. And so it is essentially a human resource issue that it's not necessarily the best position to get good people into. And I'm not saying that advisors aren't good people. I'm just saying if you're looking to build a highly effective advisor, you need to pay them well, you need to give them a path to success, all of those things. I'm trying to make advising a more rewarding job, not say that advisors aren't worthy of being rewarded. I'm saying, in fact, the opposite. They very much are, and we should be shifting more resources. But the problem is, if I'm the president of that community college, I'm never going to blame my institution's effectiveness on my inability to recruit good people 
Because then what I'm saying is the people I have aren't good enough, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but it is something we need to talk about that if these jobs are entry level with little compensation and little path for trajectory, how can we hope to get the best people in them? And subsequent, and by the way, we're not supporting them enough with training and resources, right? So all of these challenges that are essentially organizational or HR type of problems are inhibiting our ability to get advisors where they need to be. And I think part of it is exactly what you're talking about in terms of the structure. How many advisors do we have? How does that fit our students? How have we articulated goals? But the other part is how do we position that role to be successful? And that's, again, I'm not saying this to indemnify anyone that's in that position. I sure hope it doesn't sound that way. What I'm saying is we have not treated those positions with sufficient respect. And I would wager most advisors would probably agree with me. And then the last thing that I'll add to that is just that when we're talking about not treating this role with respect, that extends to our students' perspectives about advising as well. When, you know, one of the challenges that it's often discussed and that they bring up in the Future of Advising article is like this idea of, well, we, you know, even if we have these resources, students aren't using them or students don't come to advising, they don't see the value of it and all these types of things. Um, and I, I do think that that's a problem. But again, I think that, you know, if we are valuing advising as an institution and we understand the power of advising as institutions and, and we're absolutely supporting our advisors accordingly, but also are communicating that to our students proactively as they're coming in, then I think that that completely changes the game in terms of student engagement with some of this and their expectations going in and their level of involvement involvement in the process. So really love that. I, I think that's a, a great takeaway and a great way to kind of close out the uh, lit review portion of our, our podcast. What's coming up next for us? What are we doing as uh, for us at DIA um, as we're continuing to think about all of these things in the advising space? Well, I could seriously go on talking about this for a whole other hour. I've really, really I know. this is such a good conversation. Uh, one of the internal plugs I wanted to give is a project we've been working on uh, for the last couple of weeks, just from kind of scoping it out. But I had, I had mentioned at the, the onset of the show kind of this idea of we have a model of how we think support should be built. And then advising exists. I'm making hand gestures that are only helping me, really. But advising is kind of this other fixed point. And what we've been doing for years is saying, get advising to where we are right? Get your student support mechanism to this function of advising, coaching, counseling, rather than asking, how does what we do provide information into the advising structures as they exist now? And I think in 2024, that's going to be a big focus for us. So we're launching a project that I have dubbed the AHA project, because we're calling this model Assessment Informed Holistic Advising, AHA. And so the idea is we're going to be talking with advisors through open-ended surveys, through campus visits, through focus groups to try to figure out some of the things that I talked about in like that Adolji and Mishwat article about how are you spending your time? You know, what are the things that are important to you? What are things that you know about students before you meet with them or would like to know? And, and some of that is that sort of exploratory nature. But the other part is how can we take the data we have that we know are so vital about students and give them to you in a better way? How can we package that? Or what are things that you are doing that we don't know about? Are there conversation tips, all this stuff? So the goal of this is going to be really, if I can take one more kind of step back in the proposal for this project, you know, we're going to send it out to some people, but really the bigger deal was trying to communicate what we meant. If you talk about research into to the non-cognitive skills, the 
I can't believe it's been an hour and 20 minutes since the first time I said the word non-cognitive. <laughs> but the idea is the concept is there. We know that these factors predict success, that they're a huge part of what's, what makes students successful. But from an assessment and measurement perspective, we have that kind of data, but what we haven't figured out is the system change needed to match that. How do we better infuse those data into the decisions we make, into our understanding, into practices, those, those sorts of things? So the quote-unquote aha project is going to be about that. So if you haven't seen it already, uh, we'll be putting that out on uh, our LinkedIn page and on our website pretty soon. Um, and if you want to know, just reach out and contact us uh, via email. So with that, I think we're going to wrap this up because we've gone way longer. I've got to have to edit out 20 minutes somewhere or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> This has been great. I've had a super good time, Andrea. Yeah, this was super fun. Um, this is a this is an incredibly important topic, and there's so much nuance to it. I'm glad we got a chance to 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 have this conversation today. There'll be a lot more coming out from us this month as we talk about advising through our blog and through other things. So hopefully those resources are helpful to you. Again, you can find us on our website at diahighered.com if you want to. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and we will talk to you next month. Thanks for listening. Tune in next month for episode four, Interventions. Until then, have a wonderful day and an even better tomorrow.